This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. All the anger and all the bulldozing um, were actually in vain, isn't it? That as he, as his car stood there at the traffic light, I think both of us should have recognized very quickly that the traffic light ultimately rules. Not the driver, not the cars, not our efforts and our angers get uh, are merely in vain when we pit against something that rules. Psalms 2 verse 1 reads this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Now this afternoon as we come to the second psalm, the psalmist begins abruptly with this question, Why the rage? Or if your NIV has a translation, it says, Why conspire? And why do you plot in vain against God and His anointed? Why do you set yourself against the one who ultimately rules? Now, along with Psalm 1 last week, Psalm 2 is a poetry that underlie the many Psalms ahead of us. It's a poetry that depicts the vain attempts of worldly powers as they pit themselves against God. It also set the stage for us to actually reflect on our own response to God and His anointed King in the weeks ahead. Now, there are four scenes in Psalm 2, and let me just give them to you before we dive into each one in greater depth. It's also in the bulletin, you can look at it. But here are the four scenes. The first one is the challenge against God in verses 1 to 3, followed by the laughter of God, by God, in verses 4 to 6. And the third scene is when the words from God is spoken in 7 to 9, and finally, the offer of God from verses 10 to 12. So these are the four scenes within Psalm 2, And let's look at the first, the challenge against God. Let me finish reading um, verses 2 and 3 for us. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and their shackles. It's kind of a poetic way to have parallels of saying or emphasizing on the point that is being made here. Here in verses 1 to 3, we hear, we're actually hearing, uh, the hatred and the enmity that the world has, or the worldly power has against God and His anointed, which is God's chosen king. Now this challenge is portrayed throughout the Psalms of David, and now that the king in Israel is meant to represent God. So when you go against the king, you are also going against the God. Uh, whom he represents. And we don't need to flip very far into the rest of Psalms because the moment you flip to the next Psalms in Psalm 3, you start to hear this echo all the way. In Psalms 3, you have here that God's anointed king is actually the first Psalm allocated to David, that he cries out to God saying, God, the enemies are against me. You know, even my own son Absalom is against me and wants to usurp the throne. And the enemies who are against David, they were frightened him with these words, saying, you know what? God will not deliver you. That's in Psalms 3, verse 2. And and it goes on. As we read the Psalms, we are often drawn into the scene of the enemies gathering in pursuit of God's king. They are ever waiting to lay their hands for the king's blood. 
in a world where prideful kings and leaders will pit themselves <clears throat> against each other, threatening each other with words, with chariots, with horses, or perhaps with missiles that can go from the east to the west. Psalm 2 is an unusual psalm. If you look at Psalm 2, instead of fighting each other, the kings and the rulers actually band together to find a common enemy that they actually hate more than each other. And that enemy is God. Look at verse 2 and 3 uh, with me. So deep-seated is their hatred against God that the kings and the rulers will set aside their difference and they will band together against God and His anointed. And they said this in verse 3, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now if you look around, around us or as we look at the newspaper, we will find this enmity the world has against God and against His anointed, Jesus Christ. It's widespread. This world... They actually would not mind if you give them a god that is kind of a bit like Santa Claus or the genie in the bottle that you kind of rub a little bit and you get a bit of blessings. But uh, the god that rules above is not something that the world likes or wants to hear. Now the message of an absolute creator god who rules the world, who judges the world and who saves the world the way he does it's not a message that the world wants to hear. And for this message, the world will gather and pit against God. The world does not want to be told what to do. The world wants to decide its own future. Now we'll see a bit of this shadow in the rest of Psalms, or in fact the historical story of King David, where the enemies are against David and his God. But Really, as you look at the story in the Bible, the clearest challenge against God and His anointed is actually found in the New Testament, in the story of David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Himself. In fact, Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter and John, when they quoted Psalm 2, they speak of the kings and the rulers of this world pitting against the king that God has chosen. Let me read to you in Acts 4, um, verse 24. Let me read this for us. It's on the screen. Sovereign Lord, Apostle Peter and John said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against His anointed one. And then they explain it. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You know, a thousand years after Psalm 2 has been written, the followers of Jesus explains the anger against God and against Jesus. Now, from a political point of view, the, the Roman authorities, Herod and Pont, uh, Pontius Pilate, they're, they're always enemies. From a religious point of view, the Gentiles and the Jews, they're not the best of friends. But for Jesus, they will gather and they will put Jesus on the cross. Yet all their efforts are but in vain according to our history. 
because they fail in their feeble rebellion against God and against His anointed King because they just can't keep Jesus dead. They, they kill Him, they put Him in the tomb, but they just can't keep Him there because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. So the amazement in Psalm 2 is actually revealed here and echoed here when God's servant King Jesus was put to death but can't be kept in the tomb. Why would anyone pit against God and His anointed, say the psalmist of Psalm 2? And if you look at Psalm 2, we'll notice this as well. Not just the kings and the rulers are pitting against God. The people themselves are also pitting against God where there is much rage and much pride. You know what comes along? Foolishness comes along. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche, I hope I pronounced it correctly, he famously said this in his 1883 works. He said this, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. The death of God is a way of saying that humans could no longer believe in the Christian God. And the death of God will lead, Nietzsche says, not only to the rejection of the belief of a cosmic or uh, physical order in the world, but also a rejection of anything called absolute values. There's no more objective or universal moral laws binding all individuals. So to put it in our own layman terms, it just means that, you know what, we're all gods of ourselves. So God is dead, said Nietzsche. God remains dead and we have killed him. No, but such rage and arrogance and folly in the world can only last for a really short time because God has the last say. There's a, there's a picture that I didn't put it up here, but it was kind of humorous response to that. It, it, it puts there, Nietzsche says, God is dead, 1883. God says, Nietzsche is dead, 1900. And that's the full stop of uh, his life. Um, it, it's just a humorous point, but you get a point of view that at the end of the day, it's God who uh, has the last laugh. And that's where we read, as God looks at the ploy of the world to dethrone him, and he said this, look at verse 3 to 6, the laughter by God. Verse 4, sorry, verse 4 to 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. If we kind of follow the scene or the poetry, initially the king in heaven, he kind of laughs as their feeble attempt, but soon it turns to scoff and turn to anger and finally to wrath. The second scene actually brings our attention to this, that God is not amused. God is not amused at humans' rebellion against him. His laughter is not one of amusement, but at the ridiculous human pride of wanting to oppose him. Now, while our world wants to be free from God, to be our own gods, to rid ourselves of the world's kind of rightful monarch and indulge in kind of subjective morality, God will have none of our rebellion 
and the world, as the world plans to kind of silence God and set the rules as we please, God declares, I have already set my king for this world on Zion, his holy mountain. You know, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews, they thought by killing Jesus, they would silence his word, but they have neither been able to keep Jesus dead nor keep the word silence up to today. Now, all through history, we have powerful kings and leaders who fought against God and His anointed and His message about salvation. Now, after Herod and Pilate, we have King Agrippa I is still in Acts where he killed the Apostle James and then persecuted followers. But after that, you have King Nero. He kind of framed and persecuted Christians in the first century. And you go on in history, you have Emperor Decius, who arrested, who tortured, imprisoned, executed Christians who refused to sacrifice to the Roman gods. And and you reach on to the end of 3rd century, you have uh, persecution from the Emperor Dioclin, uh, Diocletian, I hope I pronounced that, or Galatius, um, the emperors, they intensified the persecution of Christians and, and the list goes on and on. And on, but where are the kings of the earth now? Where are the rulers who band together against God and His anointed? Those who try to dethrone God ultimately ends with their own death. God said this in verse 6, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Even today, in our 2017, we continue to see Kind of widespread oppositions against God and His anointed you know, followers of Jesus. They were persecuted in, in many places. We, we pray about them almost every other week. You know, some authorities would routinely use pain to force Christians to deny Jesus or simply just use weapons on, on unarmed Christians. And meanwhile, in the name of tolerance, Christians would beg to defer in the redefinition of gender or marriage are considered intolerant. Even in well-developed countries, speaking about Jesus and about God, it's kind of frowned at. You know, this week, I was looking at Barnabas Fund's uh, website and they wrote about Australian children being banned from talking about Jesus in the playground. Let me just read this to you. It's dated 3rd August. Um, it says this, The Australian state of Queensland Education Department sent directives to school principals to take action against children who talked about Jesus or gave out Christmas cards in primary school. Well, the, the article goes on later, it emerged that actually the directives had not been scrutinized by the community and so on. So they are under investigation, uh, they are reconsidering this. But it also appears, it carries on, that only Christians are singled out in the educational education department's directives while other religions are kind of being ignored. This is just this a few days ago um, on the website. The rebellion against God and His anointed Jesus is, is deeply rooted in us because we do not want to be dethroned in our own lives. We want to be the king of our lives. Now, when the Bible speaks about sins and sinners, sin is really more than just doing something wrong or being tempted to do something that we otherwise wouldn't want to do, or just um, being self-interested. But, but the root of sin is this. The root of sin is our deep hatred 
when God wants to rule. Because we want the crown ourselves. We want, we don't care about other people, but for my life, I would like to rule it myself. Thank you very much. You know, if Christianity preaches about God who can be tamed, who is like Santa Claus or a pet, you know what? There will be no persecution for Christians. But if Christians preach about God who rules above us, oppositions will come. But some too tell us these oppositions will fail. Because God has already installed His King. God laughs at the world's attempt to dethrone Him and His King. Let me now bring us to the third scene. Because God is about to speak. And He will declare His King versus the other kings that we know in our world. So look at verses 7-9 to as I look at this. In fact, these are the words of God spoken by the King. I, the King will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. Now verses 7 to 9, this is an echo of God's promise initially to King David back in, um, if you are familiar with Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, where God declared to King David, his descendants will be called God's son and God himself will be his father. Now, in, in one sense, when we read this, it can refer to David's direct son, King Solomon, because in a sense he has kind of built a temple for God, a house for God. But as we look a little bit deeper to the promise that God has given, we realize the promise is so huge that none of David's descendant kings could wear the shoes. Because the promise that God is giving is that one of your son, I'll call him my son, and he will be king forever. And so huge is the shoes that no one has worn it since until Jesus appear. And furthermore, Psalms 2 verse 8, it continues this. This is the promise that goes on. Ask me, and I'll make nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possessions. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Now again, the image of poetry, you can imagine the rod of iron and the kind of pottery being smashed on, on the floor, never to be kind of fixed Again, and God promised this anointed king two things. Look at verse 8 and 9. There are two things that God promised. The first promise is this, that the world will be his. His inheritance and his possession, the world will be his. And secondly, the enemies will be totally crushed by rod of iron like pottery dashed into pieces. None of David's descendants could wear that shoe because, in fact, Israel was never considered the greatest kingdom in the world. It is in the Bible, but in church, in the world history, it's never that great until Jesus arrives. So let me want, let me just bring us a little bit now and journey us to the New Testament where Psalm 2 has become a key to explain and speaks about Jesus. Let me first look at God himself declaring Jesus to be that Son of God of Psalm 2. Let me read to you Matthew 3.16 during Jesus' baptism. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am 
well pleased. Now, what God had promised King David thousand, a thousand years ago, uh, before Jesus, he made his intention clear at the baptism of Jesus with his own, with his voice from heaven saying, you know what, this is the son and this is the one I'm well pleased. Whatever he asks, I will give it to him. Even if it's the nations and the earth as his inheritance. And Jesus did gain these two things, isn't it? In his life. He, he did overcome the greatest enemy. Well, it is sin and death. That's our greatest enemy. But Psalm 2 actually points us that he will also overcome all those who opposes him. So God will give the enemies of Jesus ultimately to his feet. And the second promise that God has given is that you inherit the world. And Jesus is the only king from the line of David and on the world that actually inherits the world because when his kingdom people come as Christians, they kind of surpass us or go beyond geography and, and time. No geography and no local or um, country citizenships restricts anyone to come into the kingdom of heaven. And no one generation alone occupies the kingdom because the kingdom belongs to those from the beginning of creation until the time he comes back. Which king can bear such an inheritance? No one else except for Jesus. And before I move to the fourth scene, I want to just dig in a little bit. There are three areas in New Testament that quote Psalm 2. In fact, this uh, scene to reveal even more of Jesus that we would appreciate um, to see that he is really different from the other king. I'm going to give us three, three aspects of Jesus from three parts of the New Testament uh, that quote Psalm 2, um, where he says, You are my son, today I've become your father. So let me bring us to a few of this today. In the New Testament, the Hebrew writer, he, he quotes this, uh, Psalms 2 verse 4. In fact, he says this in Hebrews 1 verse 5, right at the beginning, to say that, you know what, Jesus is not only just the king, he's actually greater than angels. Let me just read this for us. Angels in Old Testament are called sons of God, but Jesus is much greater than that. Hebrews 1 verse 5, he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I'll be his father and he'll be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Do we actually pause and, or does the world actually pause and recognize that even the angels in heaven worships Jesus? Why do the nations, why do the kings, why do the rulers, why do the peoples on earth be so bold as to oppose Jesus. Perhaps because the Jesus that the world sees is that little baby in that cradle in the shopping center. Perhaps the Jesus that people think of is that person who kind of cares for the poor. Perhaps the only thing, the other one that people see about Jesus is that make humble person hang naked on the cross. But the New Testament tells us this Son of God is the one that heaven will bow down with no qualms because he is greater than them. The angels will worship him. And again, Hebrew 5 verse 5, 
quotes this again. But this time around, he brings us to another picture that Jesus is also greater than any other high priest that's ever lived. Let me just read this for us and um, to see what the significance is. Hebrews 5, verse 5, it says this, In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, Psalm 2, You are my son. Today I become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You know, in the Old Testament, there's really just one person who can get closest to God. And that is the high priest in Israel. Because that is the only person once a year could bring a sacrifice and enters the holies of holies. He never enters without blood. He always brings blood in so that God will forgive the rebellion of Israel against God. That God will not destroy them but will keep them. But even that is the extent that the high priest can, to go in once a year, perhaps chains on his legs, so that in case he is not approved, they can still pull him out. But here is Jesus, who is greater than Aaron, the first high priest. He's the high priest that will enter the presence of God forever. This is the Son of God. But now one greater than the Old Testament high priest is here. He's more than angels. He's greater than the greatest high priest. And thirdly, even the Apostle Paul start to quote Psalm 2 in his sermon in Acts 13. We're, we're, we're doing the series on, on, on Acts in the morning, but here is the sermon from Paul, and he says this in Acts 13. Let me just read to you as he highlights the resurrection of Jesus to point that because he's the Son of God, he's one who cannot see and will not see decay. Let me just read this for us and see how Psalm 2 is used again. Acts 13, 32. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. Now Jesus, the Son of God, the inheritor of the promise to David, this is proven by his resurrection. Now the question the psalmist would ask is, now who wants to stand against such a king who never dies? who is always in God's presence, that the angels will bow down at no qualms. Which king wants to pit against God's king? Dear friends, why do the nation rage and the people plot in vain? Why do kings and rulers pit themselves against God and his anointed? But how about us? Do we rage and pit against God and His anointed? Do we raise our feast at God the way that the world did when Nietzsche declared in 1883, God is dead? Maybe we do openly, but perhaps we don't. But sometimes, perhaps some people do privately by the way we live. Why does a person really thinks that he or she can use the name of Jesus as a swear word and laugh about it. 
or forces Christians to renounce their loyalty to Jesus or scoff or take offense at the words in the Bible or condemn Christian truth and embrace the new reality of morality or make idols of worship, whether it's wooden or iron or idolize money, fame, security or when we take offense, when God says no to something, we say, God, who are you in my life? These are not spoken words all the time that God, I'm against you, but these are the things that we see everywhere. Is this part of us? Do we pit against God and His King? Here's the reality as we look at Psalm 2. We don't have to be powerful kings or rulers to oppose God. Those who do not accept God's King has already opposed Him. Because that basically is saying, you know what God, it's good to have you around, but not in my life. I be my king, and you do rule your other place. So this is not the realm or kingdom that you you have access to. That's what is being said in the unsaid words when we pit ourselves in our lives against God. Why do the nations rage? Why do people plot in vain? Why do kings and rulers pit themselves against God and His anointed? Now we've kind of moved four, three different scenes now. The first scene, we've seen the challenge against God in verse 1 to 3. 4 to 6, we saw God's laughter. 7 to 9, we saw, we hear God's word. But now we want to come in to verse 10 to 12, where God actually surprisingly makes an offer to us and to the world. Let me read this for us. And we see the grace that God has given to this world. Let me read 10 to 12. Therefore you kings, be wise. Be warned you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your ways will be will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare in a moment, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now as the psalmist comes to this final scene, he offers counsel to people who are willing to hear, to the rebellious, to king, to rulers, or all that they represent. He says this, after painting all the reality to us, the psalmist cried this out, Therefore, turn away from your rebellion against God, Recognize Jesus as God's anointed and give him the keys of homage, the rightful affection that belongs to him, which the angels are all willing to give. To respond rightly to Jesus, we, we need to know him. We need to know his authority in this world. and We need to see his mercy extended to, to you and me. You know, the common image we see of Jesus as a baby really is a picture of his perfect obedience to God. The picture of that naked Jesus on the cross is no ornament, but really his extension of forgiveness of sin and forgiveness of us. So for those of us, if we are considering about Jesus to be our king, or for those of us who already accepted Jesus as our king, you know what? We are not kissing a king that's arrogant, He's not an arrogant geographical king or a prideful king, but he's a rightful king of all creation. That's how Psalms wants us to see 
that we are not kissing a king who is ignorant of our hidden sins, but a king who is fully aware of all our hidden thoughts, desires, our actions, our rebellion against God. And he says, and I will die for you if you come to me. We are not kissing a king who is like a little kid who gets angry for no reason, but we are kissing a king whose holy wrath is long overdue and he can come any moment. But before that comes, he says, come to me. So here's the offer of God, which is this, kiss the son. You know, clearly the, the son is not about, the, the kissing is not speaking about those parent, child, kiss or, you know, um, boyfriend, girlfriend, romantic kiss or, or friendship kisses. It's a kiss which is a reverence or homage deserving only for a king. You no, know, there's this woman, this woman who had lived a sinful life all her life. She was despised by people around her. But one day, one day she heard that Jesus has come to town. He was eating at the home of an important person. And she picked up all her courage, a sinful woman that wouldn't come to the crowd. She picked up all her courage, brought an expensive alabaster jar of perfume, which is probably the most expensive thing that she had in all her life. That That's probably used for marriage, which probably would not happen, or for funeral. She brought that with her, and as she found Jesus, she stood beside, behind the feet of Jesus. When they eat, they all lean to the front and the feet are facing out. As she stand at the feet of Jesus, she knew who Jesus was. She knew who she was. And she didn't dare to speak to Jesus, but her tears start to flow and they start to wet the dusty feet of Jesus. And to her shock, she quickly used her hair to kind of wipe the feet of Jesus. And then she broke the alabaster jar of perfume and poured it on the feet of Jesus. And then commotions start to happen. People are like, what is this woman doing? Does he even know who she is? And after all the commotion, Jesus turned around and looked at this woman. And she said, and he said, four words. These four words are what you and I and the rest of the world needs to hear desperately before the wrath comes. These four words, he said it for us in Luke 748. Let me read to you. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. That is all she needs. And that's all she seek. At the feet of the king, with all she had, not for more treasures, not for more land, not for more fame, not for good results. But these four words, your sins are forgiven. Dear friends, what is our relationship with God and God's anointed one? Are we like the kings and rulers who pit, self, pit ourselves against God? Or are we like the one who will kiss the king? Those of us who does kiss the king, who bring all that we have to him, not that he needs anything, but because we reverence him as our king, he will not forsake us and he will not forget us. As we come to a conclusion, you no know, someone it begins with the words, Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. How does Psalm 2 ends? Blessed are all who take refuge 
in Him. Friends, as we kind of conclude the second psalm, let us consider the offer from God while we have it. Let good reasons weigh in on us that any warfare against God will always fail. That is the story of Psalm 2. If we are not Christians, then the plea is that we take heed the words of Psalmist while it's available before the wrath comes. If we are Christians, then let us be encouraged that there is a king who does not dismiss the tears of his people. He's a compassionate king who does not forget the pain and the tears and the plea of his people. There are no sins he cannot forgive and there will be sins that he will forgive if we come to him. And he is also that undefeatable, powerful king that all who trust in him are blessed because they will find refuge on the day when there is nothing that can protect humanity. And he's the king. The angels will bow down and worship and will survive to do the same in joy and the way that the angels willingly does it. Nothing poured out to the king is wasted. On the contrary, everything poured to Jesus becomes of eternal value. Gold on this earth will be eaten by moth. But even the worst that you have, that you have given fully to Jesus, becomes of eternal treasures. You now remember we started with the cars and the traffic lights. You now whether you're kind of an old Camry or you're kind of a shiny BMW or SUV or oh, you're kind of a bicycle, it is foolishness to pitch against the traffic light, isn't it? But here's something that shouldn't amaze us. The reality is that actually by obeying the traffic light, it's not robbing us of freedom or joy, but it brings us safely home at the end of the day. Two ways to live. There's no middle kingdom. The ways of the kings that pits against God or the one who kissed the feet of the king and enters into his kingdom joyfully. Somewhere where we can call home. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, O Lord Jesus Christ. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, why do nations rage? Why do peoples plot in vain? Many of us have plot in vain in our lives. But the offer by the King, we can come to Him and be blessed. Oh God, that we quickly take on to this blessing. Blessings that we can't earn by ourselves, but blessings we receive because the King is able to give us His blessings. There's no good that comes from our rebellion, so help us to kiss the Son who has the power to forgive our sins and to bring us into His kingdom. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.